Section three of Man and Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Man and Wife by Wilkie Collins. Prologue. Part the second. The March of Time. Five. Advancing from time past to time present, the prologue leaves the date last attained, the summer of eighteen hundred and fifty-five and travels on through an interval of twelve years tells who lived who died who prospered and who failed among the persons concerned in the tragedy at hampstead villa and this done leaves the reader at the opening of the story in the spring of eighteen hundred and sixty eight the record begins with a marriage the marriage of mr vanborough and lady jane parnell in three months from the memorable day when his solicitor had informed him that he was a free man Mr. Vanborough possessed the wife he desired to grace the head of his table and to push his fortunes in the world. The legislature of Great Britain being the humble servant of his treachery and the respectable accomplice of his crime, he entered Parliament. He gave, thanks to his wife, six of the grandest dinners and two of the most crowded balls of the season. He made a successful first speech in the House of Commons. He endowed a church in a poor neighborhood. He wrote an article which attracted attention in a quarterly review. He discovered, denounced, and remedied a crying abuse in the administration of a public charity. He received, thanks once more to his wife, a member of the royal family among the visitors at his country house in the autumn recess. These were his triumphs, and this his rate of progress on the way to the peerage during the first year of his life as the husband of Lady Jane. There was but one more favor that fortune could confer on her spoiled child, and fortune bestowed it. There was a spot on Mr. Vanborough's past life as long as the woman lived, whom he had disowned and deserted. At the end of the first year, death took her, and the spot was rubbed out. She had met the merciless injury inflicted on her with a rare patience, with an admirable courage. It is due to Mr. Vanborough to admit that he broke her heart, with the strictest attention to propriety. He offered, through his lawyer, a handsome provision for her and for her child. It was rejected without an instant's hesitation. She repudiated his money, she repudiated his name. By the name which she had borne in her maiden days, the name which she had made illustrious in her art, the mother and daughter were known to all who cared to inquire after them when they had sunk in the world. There was no false pride in the resolute attitude which she thus assumed after her husband had forsaken her. Mrs. Sylvester, as she was now called, gratefully accepted for herself and for Miss Sylvester the assistance of the dear old friend who had found her again in her affliction, and who remained faithful to her to the end. They lived with Lady Lundy until the mother was strong enough to carry out the plan of life which she had arranged for the future, and to earn her bread as a teacher of singing. To all appearance, she rallied and became herself again. In a few months' time, she was making her way. She was winning sympathy, confidence, and respect everywhere. When she sank suddenly at the opening of her new life, nobody could account for it. The doctors themselves were divided in opinion scientifically speaking there was no reason why she should die 
it was a mere figure of speech in no degree satisfactory to any reasonable mind to say as lady lundie said that she had got her death blow on the day when her husband deserted her the one thing certain was the fact account for it as you might in spite of science which meant little in spite of her own courage which meant much the woman dropped at her post and died in the latter part of her illness her mind gave way the friend of her old school days sitting at the bedside heard her talking as if she thought herself back again in the cabin of the ship the poor soul found the tone almost the look that had been lost for so many years the tone of the past time when the two girls had gone their different ways in the world she said will we meet darling with all the old love between us just as she had said almost a lifetime since before the end her mind rallied she surprised the doctor and the nurse by begging them gently to leave the room when they had gone she looked at lady lundie and woke as it seemed to consciousness from a dream blanche she said will you take care of my child she shall be my child anne when you are gone the dying woman paused and thought for a little a sudden trembling seized her keep it a secret she said i am afraid for my child afraid after what i have promised you she solemnly repeated the words i am afraid for my child why my anne is my second self isn't she yes she is as fond of your child as i was of you yes she is not called by her father's name she is called by mine she is anne sylvester as i was blanche will she end like me the question was put with the laboring breath with the heavy accents which tell that death is near it chilled the living woman who heard it to the marrow of her bones don't think that she cried horror-struck for god's sake don't think that the wildness began to appear again in anne sylvester's eyes she made feebly impatient signs with her hands lady lundie bent over her and heard her whisper lift me up she lay in her friend's arms she looked up in her friend's face she went back wildly to her fear for her child don't bring her up like me she must be a governess she must get her bread don't let her act don't let her sing don't let her go on the stage she stopped her voice suddenly recovered its sweetness of tone she smiled faintly she said the old girlish words once more in the old girlish way vow it blanche lady lundie kissed her and answered as she had answered when they parted in the ship i vow it anne the head sank never to be lifted more the last look of life flickered in the filmy eyes and went out for a moment afterward her lips moved lady lundie put her ear close to them and heard the dreadful question reiterated in the same dreadful words she is anne sylvester as i was will she end like me six five years passed and the lives of the three men who had sat at the dinner-table in the hempstead villa began in their altered aspects 
to reveal the progress of time and change. Mr. Kendrew, Mr. Delamain, Mr. Vanborough, let the order in which they are here named be the order in which their lives are reviewed as seen once more after a lapse of five years. How the husband's friend marked his sense of the husband's treachery has been told already. How he felt the death of the deserted wife is still left to tell. Report which sees the inmost hearts of men and delights in turning them outward to the public view had always declared that Mr. Kendrew's life had its secret and that the secret was a hopeless passion for the beautiful woman who had married his friend. Not a hint ever dropped to any living soul, not a word ever spoken to the woman herself could be produced in proof of the assertion while the woman lived. When she died, report started up again more confidently than ever, and appealed to the man's own conduct as proof against the man himself. He attended the funeral, though he was no relation. He took a few blades of grass from the turf with which they covered her grave when he thought that nobody was looking at him. He disappeared from his club. He traveled. He came back. He admitted that he was weary of England. He applied for and obtained an appointment in one of the colonies. To what conclusion did all this point? Was it not plain that his usual course of life had lost its attraction for him when the object of his infatuation had ceased to exist? It might have been so. Guesses less likely have been made at the truth and have hit the mark. It is, at any rate, certain that he left England, never to return again. Another man lost, report said. Add to that a man in ten thousand, and for once report might claim to be right. Mr. Delamain comes next. The rising solicitor was struck off the roll at his own request, and entered himself as a student at one of the inns of court. For three years nothing was known of him but that he was reading hard and keeping his terms. He was called to the bar. His late partners in the firm knew they could trust him and put business into his hands. In two years he made himself a position in court. At the end of two years he made himself a position out of court. He appeared as junior in a famous case in which the honor of a great family and the title to a great estate were concerned. His senior fell ill on the eve of the trial. He conducted the case for the defendant and won it. The defendant said, What can I do for you? Mr. Delamain answered, Put me into Parliament. Being a landed gentleman, the defendant had only to issue the necessary orders, and behold, Mr. Delamain was in Parliament. In the House of Commons, the new member and Mr. Vanborough met again. They sat on the same bench and sided with the same party. Mr. Delamain noticed that Mr. Vanborough was looking old and worn and gray. He put a few questions to a well-informed person. The well-informed person shook his head. Mr. Vanborough was rich. Mr. Vanborough was well-connected through his wife. Mr. Vanborough was a sound man in every sense of the word, but nobody liked him. He had done very well the first year, and there it had ended. He was undeniably clever but he produced a disagreeable impression in the house. He gave splendid entertainments, but he wasn't popular in society. His party respected him, but when they had anything to give, they passed him over. He had a temper of his own. If the truth must be told, and with nothing against him, on the contrary, with everything in his favor, 
he didn't make friends a soured man at home and abroad a soured man seven five more years passed dating from the day when the deserted wife had laid in her grave it was now the year eighteen hundred and sixty-six on a certain day in that year two special items of news appeared in the papers the news of an elevation to the peerage and the news of a suicide getting on well at the bar mr delamayn got on better still in parliament he became one of the prominent men in the house spoke clearly sensibly and modestly and was never too long held the house where men of higher abilities bored it the chiefs of his party said openly we must do something for delamayn the opportunity offered and the chiefs kept their word their solicitor-general was advanced a step and they put delamayn in his place there was an outcry on the part of the older members of the bar the ministry answered we want a man who was listened to in the house and we have got him the papers supported the new nomination a great debate came off and the new solicitor-general justified the ministry and the papers his enemies said derisively he will be lord chancellor in a year or two his friends made genial jokes in his domestic circle which pointed to the same conclusion they warned his two sons julius and geoffrey then at college to be careful what acquaintances they made as they might find themselves the sons of a lord at a moment's notice it really began to look like something of the sort always rising mr delamayn rose next to be attorney-general about the same time so true it is that nothing succeeds like success a childless relative died and left him a fortune in the summer of sixty six a chief judgeship fell vacant the ministry had made a previous appointment which had been universally unpopular they saw their way to supplying the place of their attorney-general and they offered the judicial appointment to mr delamayn he preferred remaining in the house of commons and refused to accept it the ministry declined to take no for an answer they whispered confidentially will you take it with a peerage mr delamayn consulted his wife and took it with a peerage the london gazette announced him to the world as baron holchester of holchester and the friends of the family rubbed their hands and said what did we tell you here are our two young friends julius and geoffrey the sons of a lord and where was mr vanborough all this time exactly where we left him five years since he was as rich or richer than ever he was as well connected as ever he was as ambitious as ever but there it ended he stood still in the house he stood still in society nobody liked him he made no friends it was the old story over again with this difference that the soured man was sourer the gray head grayer and the irritable temper more unendurable than ever his wife had her rooms in the house and he had his and the confidential servants took care that they never met on the stairs they had no children they only saw each other at their grand dinners and balls people ate at their table and danced on their floor and compared notes afterwards and said how dull it was step by step the man who had once been mr vanborough's lawyer 
rose till the peerage received him and he could rise no longer while mr vanborough on the lower round of the ladder looked up and noted it with no more chance rich as he was and well connected as he was of climbing into the house of lords than your chance or mine the man's career was ended and on the day when the nomination of the new peer was announced the man ended with it he laid the paper aside without making any remark and went out his carriage set him down where the green fields still remain on the northwest of london near the footpath which leads to hampstead he walked alone to the villa where he had once lived with the woman who he had so cruelly wronged new houses had risen round it part of the old garden had been sold and built on after a moment's hesitation he went to the gate and rang the bell he gave the servant his card the servant's master knew the name as the name of a man of great wealth and a member of parliament he asked politely to what fortunate circumstance he owed the honor of that visit mr vanborough answered briefly and simply i once lived here i have associations with the place with which it is not necessary for me to trouble you will you excuse what must seem to you a very strange request i should like to see the dining-room again if there is no objection and if i am disturbing nobody the strange requests of rich men are of the nature of privileged communication for this excellent reason that they are sure not to be requests for money mr vanborough was shown into the dining-room the master of the house secretly wondering watched him he walked straight to a certain spot on the carpet not far from the window that led into the garden and nearly opposite the door on that spot he stood silently with his head on his breast thinking was it there he had seen her for the last time on the day when he left the room for ever yes it was there after a moment or so he roused himself but in a dreamy absent manner he said it was a pretty place and expressed his thanks and looked back before the door closed and then went on his way again his carriage picked him up where it had set him down he drove to the residence of the new lord of holchester and left a card for him then he went home arrived at his house his secretary reminded him that he had an appointment in ten minutes time he thanked the secretary in the same dreamy absent manner in which he had thanked the owner of the villa and went into his dressing-room the person with whom he made the appointment came and the secretary sent the valet upstairs to knock at the door there was no answer on trying the lock it proved to be turned inside they broke open the door and saw him lying on the sofa they went close to look and found him dead by his own hand eight drawing fast to its close the prologue reverts to the two girls and tells in a few words how the years passed with anne and blanche lady lundie more than redeemed the solemn pledge that she had given her friend preserved from every temptation which might lure her into a longing to follow her mother's career trained for a teacher with all the arts and all the advantages that money could procure anne's first and only essays as a governess were made under lady lundie's own roof on lady lundie's own child 
the difference in ages of the girls seven years the love between them which seemed as time went on to grow with their growth favored the trial of the experiment in the double relation of teacher and friend to little branch the girlhood of anne sylvester the younger passed safely happily uneventfully in the modest sanctuary of home who could imagine a contrast more complete than the contrast between her early life and her mother's who could see anything but a deathbed delusion in the terrible question which had tortured the mother's last moments will she end like me but two events of importance occurred in the quiet family circle during the lapse of years which is now under review in eighteen hundred and fifty eight the household was enlivened by the arrival of sir thomas lundy in eighteen hundred and sixty five the household was broken up by the return of sir thomas to india accompanied by his wife lady lundy's health had been failing for some time previously the medical men consulted on the case agreed that a sea voyage was the one change needful to restore their patient's wasted strength exactly at the time as it happened when sir thomas was due again in india for his wife's sake he agreed to defer his return by taking the sea voyage with her the one difficulty to get over was the difficulty of leaving blanche and anne behind in england appealed to on this point the doctors had declared that at blanche's critical time of life they could not sanction her going to india with her mother at the same time near and dear relatives came forward who were ready and anxious to give blanche and her governess a home sir thomas on his side engaged to bring his wife back in a year and a half or at most in two years time assailed in all directions lady lundy's natural unwillingness to leave the girls was overruled she consented to the parting with a mind secretly depressed and secretly doubtful of the future at the last moment she drew anne sylvester on one side out of hearing of the rest anne was then a young woman of twenty-two and blanche a girl of fifteen my dear she said simply i must tell you what i cannot tell sir thomas and what i am afraid to tell blanche i am going away with a mind that misgives me i am persuaded i shall not live to return to england and when i am dead i believe my husband will marry again years ago your mother was uneasy on her deathbed about your future i am uneasy now about blanche's future i promised my dear dead friend that you should be like my own child to me and it quieted her mind quiet my mind anne before i go whatever happens in the years to come promise me to be always what you are now a sister to blanche she held out her hand for the last time with a full heart anne sylvester kissed it and gave the promise nine in two months from that time one of the forebodings which had weighed on lady lundy's mind was fulfilled she died on the voyage and was buried at sea in a year more the second misgiving was confirmed sir thomas lundy married again he brought his second wife to england toward the close of eighteen hundred and sixty-six time in the new household promised to pass as quietly as in the old sir thomas remembered and respected the trust which his first wife had placed in anne the second lady lundy wisely guiding her conduct in this manner by the conduct of her husband left things as she found them in the new house 
at the opening of eighteen hundred and sixty-seven the relations between anne and blanche were relations of sisterly sympathy and sisterly love the prospect in the future was as fair as a prospect could be at this date of the persons concerned in the tragedy of twelve years since at the hampstead villa three were dead and one was self-exiled in a foreign land there now remained living anne and blanche who had been children at the time and the rising solicitor who had discovered the flaw in the irish marriage once mr delamayn now lord holchester End of section three